Hello and welcome everybody. This is Dr. Tully for History 302. Uh, today we're talking about the Western, and, and Buffalo Bill in particular, but kind of the Western in general. Uh, now for this this particular lecture, I'm not going to talk too, too much about Buffalo Bill because uh, the, the reading selection you have this week does a really excellent job of covering him. I give you the first chapter and conclusion of uh, Buffalo Bill's Wild West, book by Joy Kason, and she does an excellent job of really not talk, just talking about his history, but also talking about like how he gets into um, elements of memory. And and that's the stuff I really want you to focus upon for this particular unit. So, like I said, uh, this one's a bit weird because I'm covering a genre as well as a historical instance. If you're over one slide, you'll see introduction to Western. Uh, the Western was once a dominant genre in like books, stage, film, TV, etc. And yet it's nowhere near as common as it used to be. Um, in the past couple of years, you've had things like Westworld, which isn't really a Western. I mean, I know it takes place in a Western uh, time period. Well, not a Western time period, a Western setting. But it's primarily like a science fiction, you know, what is reality, computers, robots, you know, what's a robot, what's not a robot type of thing. So it's not really a Western, although it has a Western backdrop. Uh, probably the other pretty high-profile thing that came out with there's a video game called Red Dead Redemption 2 and Red Dead Redemption. There are also Westerns. In fact, um, one of the criticisms the game gets is because it's kind of... They say it gets boring because uh, it's kind of slow and prodding at points just to be somewhat realistic for the West uh, aesthetic. Uh, but seriously, there used to be Westerns all the time. Nowadays, you don't get too, too many Westerns. Uh, but Westerns really came to dominate the worldwide depictions of America. Uh, for a lot of places, the term American is synonymous with cowboy. You know, oh, those cowboy Americans of Cybedine. Um, Americans really champion this type of viewpoint for them as a people, but also it really becomes a very common depiction of the United States across the world. Uh, the, the Western is something which, unlike, you know, the menageries or Shakespeare stuff we talked about before, really comes from America and is about America. Uh, you can't separate the Western from the location. You can't really have a Western outside of the American West. Now, is the West a place or a process? That's where we kind of get into it. You know, is the West just a physical location, or is it the process by which a land is quote-unquote tamed and um, becomes part of the country? Uh, so the first thing I want to talk about, actually, is the Leather Stocking Tales. The Leather Stocking Tales written by a guy by the name of James Fenimore Cooper. Uh, Cooper are, is the uh, author of the Leather Stocking Tales. Uh, they're a collection of five different novels. There's also some associated short stories uh, centered around one character, a guy by the name of Leather Stocking. And they're really some of the first stories that really establish what it is that becomes known as the Western. Um, something like uh, The Scarlet Letter is the first of what would later become like American novelizations. You know, what is American writing like? Uh, but the Leather Stocking Tales... They go a bit further of, like, setting America as a site, as a place. Uh, Cooper is writing these books uh, around the 1820s or 1850s. Like I said, he writes these for quite a while. He becomes pretty famous for writing these books, uh, but mainly in the 1830s. And the time period he's writing about is primarily, like, the 1750s, uh, a pre-Revolutionary War colonial America. Talking about a, a recent mythical past, in a sort. Um, Cooper's background. His, his father is a man by the name of William Cooper. Uh, William Cooper founds a town in western New York called Cooperstown. It has his name. I believe it's the same place where they have like the baseball hall of fame, Cooperstown. 
And um, it starts out as a quote-unquote frontier town. And, you know, over his lifetime, William Cooper really settles this place, really makes it into like a, a thriving little city, thriving little town. And that's what James Fenimore Cooper grows up in. He grows up into this very... Um, over his lifetime, it becomes settled in a sense. Like it becomes established, you know, more things come in, the paved roads come in. But he, but in his writings, uh, Finnamore Cooper, James Finnamore Cooper is writing about a sense of loss. And, and that's something I really need you to understand about the Western and the American society. American Westerns are often about loss. It's often about the sense that there was this great land and now modernity is coming in and taking it away. And it's somewhat wistful. Uh, the best one of these series, like I said, um, is probably The Last of the Mohegans. That's the one you probably are most familiar with, if you're familiar with these at all. They had a movie that came out in the 90s, which was pretty popular, but then again, you weren't born in the 90s. Um, but most of Cooper's stories, uh, think of the, there's five Leatherstocking Tales. Uh, four of them are about Western New York, which makes sense because that is where Cooper is originally from. That's where his dad, you know, established this town of Cooperstown. Uh, it's... The only, uh, the last one, which talks about a very, very old leather stocking, takes place in Kansas. But by and large, these books take place in Western New York. Now, I bet you're thinking, Western New York? That's not West at all. Like, that's considerably to the east of us. I mean, yeah, pretty much anything out of New York City is still New York, and it's still a very popular state. In fact, if you don't know, New York's a very big state outside of New York City. Uh, but it, they take place in Western New York. They talk about, like, basically the Native Americans are there, uh, the people who, like, quote-unquote, settle this land, the frontiersmen, that type of thing. And, and Fenimore Cooper is very much in the West as a process. It's a process by which, you know, quote-unquote, uninhabited land, that's problematic because there are definitely Native Americans there, but land that is not cleared, land that is not, quote-unquote, developed, uh, becomes developed. And in the process of doing this, so, there is definitely a sense of loss, you know, what did we really gain by doing this? Now, I've said the term leatherstocking quite a bit. You might want to know who exactly is leatherstocking. Uh, leatherstocking is the name of the main character. Uh, the main character is a guy, his, his given name is Natty Bumpo. Natty Bumpo. Um, he has a host of other nicknames. He's called Hawkeye, the Pathfinder, the Deer Slayer, um, leatherstocking. Uh, he's, a, he's a white man who is raised by Native Americans, and he's kind of this old, well, he kind of starts the template of like the, almost like the mountain man, the frontiers man, you know, he wears a uh, buckskin, uh, leather stocking is because, you know, he wears leather socks, leather pants, he, he's all clad in leather. Have you seen the pictures? Um, leather stocking is the one holding the, the lady uh, while a bear fights a Native American. <laughs> that is supposedly leather stocking. That's a very clean shaven leather stocking. Um, in the books, he's written as a kind of a grizzled guy, you know, big, thick beard, um, more in home in the wilderness, you know, more in home outside of the, you know, outside of civilization, outside of cities, you know, the kind of this romanticized character who's like more out home in the wilderness. You know, he doesn't like modernity. He can, he can live off the land. He's a, he's a crack shot. Uh, one of his other names is Long Rifle, or um, well, the French word for Long Rifle, which I'm not even going to try to pronounce. Um, but this whole, you know, his whole shtick is like, you know, he's a, he's a crack shot. He can shoot anything. He can, you know, he, he's good with trapping. Uh, he has his native American blood brother. And then later on his nephew who like kind of accompany him on his, on his journeys. Uh, 
he he gets involved with civilization, but he's like a protecting force on the outside. Um, he's never too at home with people. Uh, he's more at home, like in the land, in the wilderness, and it's a very, very romanticized view of Native Americans and America itself. Um, it, the character of Leatherstocking is based in part um, mainly upon the people that uh, that Cooper knew, kind of growing up in, in Cooperstown. You know, he he knew these like fur trappers and stuff would come in to get the supplies from the town, but then they spend most of their time like out in the wilderness, quote unquote. Uh, but they would come in from time to time for supplies. Uh, another template they, he bases us off of is Daniel Boone. Uh, Daniel Boone, the, the quote-unquote pioneer frontiersman, uh, he gets tall tales written about him himself. Um, you know, his tales grow in the, in the telling. Uh, Daniel Boone is a real person. He does do stuff in, like, uh, you know, Kentucky, uh, the near west, we'd call it. But back then, that's considered the, the very far western frontier. Uh, Boone becomes more of a romanticized character, and in fact, a lot of Natty Bumpo is, slash Leatherstocking, is kind of this Daniel Boone template. Uh, if you look at the pictures of these various tales, uh, you'll, you'll see a lot of romanticism. Um, the, the one on the left, the color picture, is actually from the German edition of the books. Um, I'm not going to talk too much about it, I talk more about this in my film class, but... Germans weirdly take to the Western. Uh, there's very few Westerns that are made outside of the United States. Uh, a lot of times they're enjoyed by their countries outside of the United States. And yes, you have the spaghetti Westerns of the 70s. Uh, those were made in Italy. But uh, Germany really took to the Western. Like, there was a series of like Western novels, the old, the, um, old Shatterhand, which is very much ripping off Leatherstocking, written by a German guy. Uh, they make movies about them later on. They're, they're clearly filmed in the Alps. It's kind of funny. Like... They're showing these uh, quote-unquote Western vistas, and they are clearly the Alps. They are clearly the Alps. But like I said, then again, you know, the, the leather stocking tales are, are written about New York, which is not really anything we would consider to be the West. Now, this really makes the template for later Western heroes. So much of what we know of the West and, like, Westerns and the Western aesthetic, you know, kind of hyper-masculine, isolationist, uh, very much a sense of loss. I cannot iterate that enough that so much of Western identity has a Western genre is predicated upon loss. The loss of the frontier, the loss of the way of life, you know, new things have come in and they're better, but, but haven't we lost something? Haven't we lost part of our character in, in this whole, in this whole part of it? Uh, the books themselves, I, I don't want to be mean, but they're not exactly great literature. Um, you know, compared to something comparable of the time period, like a Scarlet Letter by Hawthorne, that is viewed as great literature. Uh, even at the time period, they're like, wow, that's a good novel. We're, we're showing America. Uh, these were more popular than they were, like, critically acclaimed or considered high art, if that makes sense. Uh, still, they do find an audience. And a lot of it has to do with this sense of loss. Because even as early as the 1820s, the United States is talking, though, the Indians are disappearing. There's this trope in Westerns, but also just in American in general, about the disappearing Indian. The idea that Native Americans are, are dying out, they're leaving, they're being assimilated into culture, they're losing their way of life. And this is not like, there's not really criticism of white people for like, you know, 
growing or bringing civilization or whatever, or like, you know, doing not nice things to Native Americans. It's more just like, oh, the, these people are dying out. And, you know, even though they might have been, quote unquote, lesser than us, maybe it's very romanticized. Maybe there's something to say about them, that sort of thing. Very powerful trope uh, of just this whole disappearing sense of loss. Definitely the idea that progress is coming, but at what what cost? Uh, I I can't iterate this enough, and I've probably said it too many times already. But loss and isolation are the real hallmarks of westerns. Like I'd say as a whole, the idea that you know you're living by yourself, but then modernity comes. It really pushes the West as a process, and it also helps to foster an identity of the United States as separate from Europe, based upon the land. It's the idea that, like, once you get to the United States of America, once you're on American soil, you live there long enough, you become a new creature. You become American. You know, although the colonists, remember, Cooper's writing this when Americans are like Americans because it's 1820, 1830, but this idea that the land itself will turn people into a new creation. And once again, that's something very much seen in American culture, the idea of rebirth, the idea of, you know, changing one's identity. Um, we talked about someone in Barnum, but like, you know, Cooper does this with, uh, with leather stocking, Natty Bumpo, and you see this a lot in Westerns, uh, the idea of us taking on a new identity, having different names to different people. I'm sure you've seen a Western or something. It's like, oh, they call me Black Bart and nobody knows his real name. Or they call me the Crisco Kid or, or, or whatever. This sort of thing where it's you're taking on a new name. You're taking on an identity. It's this idea that if you go west, if you go to the frontier, the American land itself is going to help foster a new identity. Make you into a brand new creation. A brand new American creation. But that's nothing compared to the high west. Uh, the High West, the Golden Age of the West, um, most of these depictions, you know, remember Cooper's writing this before the Civil War. Uh, the High West, Grand West, like the West that we idealize and is really idolized in Westerns, is kind of a Golden Age period, which no exact dates, of course. Uh, pretty much at its zenith, it's from like the 1870s-ish to the 1900-ish. This is the time period where settlers and pioneers were seen at their zenith. Uh, you have a lot of civil, civil War veterans and also former slaves looking to go west uh, to find a better life. Now, to be fair, California is already a state in this time period, and California is pretty well settled in this time period. Uh, California, uh, part of the pun, is like the golden example. I know, it's the golden state. Uh, not just for mining. Uh, it is because of a gold rush why California's uh, population grows so much. But it's mainly because of agriculture. You may not be aware of this, but uh, California is one of the biggest agricultural states in the country. I want to say it's the biggest agricultural state in the country. And it is very good farmland, incredibly good farmland. A lot of what we eat comes from California uh, just because it's very good. It's very good land. But the other territories are filled again. So like right now, if you're in my office, which I might need to come to my office sometimes. It's pretty cool. I got a sweet map of the United States, of uh, all the states and all the Western states. If you don't know this, I'm a, kind of a Western junkie. And so basically I want you to imagine, like, you know, California's a state, Oregon's pretty much settled, Washington's too. But pretty much everything west of the Mississippi and, and east of California is all quote-unquote unsettled. Now, still to this day, it's pretty unoccupied. Um, if you ever drive through it, you're going to see some pretty scenery, but not a lot of people stay, uh, like who are living there. 
Uh, that's mainly because uh, agriculture can be a problem. Uh, you need a lot of water. Uh, California is lucky because it has quite a bit of water for agriculture. It rains fairly often in these agricultural areas. Uh, not so much in a place like Arizona or, you know, New Mexico or the Dakotas or Nevada or something. Now, so this is the time period the classic Western is talking about. You know, these states being quote-unquote filled in. You know, the, the wide open prairie, uh, the buffalo. Don't get me started on buffalo. I freaking love buffalo. I will talk your ear off about buffalo. I will not be talking about buffalo too much in this class. But like, even the buffalo themselves, there were, there were millions of them, and then they get, like, slaughtered to, like, only a few thousand, actually a single thousand within 15 years. And they're like, oh, my gosh, we need to protect the buffalo, the cuddly, waddly, delicious buffalo we should protect. I'd say Buffalo are a big part of the Western. In fact, you know, that's where Buffalo Bill gets his name, but we'll, we'll go there in a little sense. But also, like, the sense of the loss of Buffalo is akin to the sense of the loss of Native Americans. Uh, the West is settled, quote-unquote. Kind of the end of the West comes with two things. Number one is admission into statehood. Uh, basically, whenever a territory becomes a state, that is seen as, you know, that is the end of the Wild West period. You know, that's when order, that's when law comes to these places. Remember, in a lot of Westerns, they talk about there is no law, there is no order. Every individual has to be their own lawman. That's why we all carry guns and stuff. Uh, and also the arrival of locomotion, the arrival of trains. Uh, you don't see that demonstrated too much in Westerns. Sometimes they'll like, you know, show people coming off trains. But in history, basically, whenever a train came to a town, uh, that was kind of seen as the end of its frontier days, because now they could get supplies a lot more regularly. Now, I do want to iterate this. Um, in actual historic, like, West, the Far West, like, the location, uh, people really wanted these things. That was, that was the goal, was pretty much get statehood as quick as humanly possible. Uh, that's one of the reasons why Wyoming is the first state to give women the right to vote. Uh, to become a state, you have to have a certain population. And so the Wyoming Territory is like, hey, uh, sorry, a certain population of voting people, of people who can vote. And so basically Wyoming's like, hey, if we let women vote, we like double our population and we can get statehood. Uh, so to this day, Wyoming has the smallest population of any U.S. state, and yet it's one of the biggest states by term of land mass. Um, my parents used to stay in uh, Montana fairly often, and I'd visit them sometimes. And we, we'd drive, and I, I can tell you, there is nothing in Wyoming. Um, Yellowstone's in Wyoming, and Yellowstone is beautiful, but the rest of Wyoming is very empty and not a lot of folks there. Uh, Montana's not that different, except I'd say Montana's a lot prettier. But that's the actual historic West. It's not, you know, um, the Wild West, if you watch these movies, even the sense of loss, it makes it seem like, oh, the West has always been this way. Um, akin to plantation stuff and southern stuff, which we're not going to get into too much, but uh, like something with Gone with the Wind talks about the South as though, oh, people have lived here for generations on plantations. Uh, same thing in Wild West. It's like, this is how we've always done this. That's inaccurate. Uh, the Wild West is based upon pretty much a generation or two. Uh, plantations are about two generations, possibly three, but really it's just two generations of people who live on these great plantations of the... Uh, Great in the sense of large, not in the sense of good, but these large plantations in the South. Likewise, the Wild West is barely a generation or two. Um, also, it's very based upon a transient population. Uh, there's not a lot of people who are like long-term, you know, oh, I've been in these hills for forever. That's me trying to do an old prospector voice. Uh, that's inaccurate. Um, 
Most people in the West are moving around quite a bit. Yes, a lot of them are homesteading, which is a way you could get free land by staying for 10 years in one spot. However, because a lot of this land is not very good for farming, uh, a lot of people just kind of moved around a lot. A lot of trying to, you know, get rich quick schemes. A lot of people try to get involved in mining. Uh, so it's it, the idea that like, oh, these people have been here forever. They're living off the land. Uh, that's not exactly accurate. Uh, also, the idea that they're very self-made individuals, they don't like the government for nothing, that's also not historically accurate. Uh, the West, more than any other region of the United States, was more dependent upon the federal government and federal assistance than pretty much any other part of the country, the way any other part of the country developed. Like, legitimately, southern states and eastern states, midwestern states, well, midwestern is different because I was considered the West for a while, too. But particularly when you talk about the far west states, you know, your Idaho's, your Utah's, not Utah because it's Mormon, it's different, we're not going to go into that, but your Colorado, Arizona's, etc. Uh, they are actually the states that are most heavily dependent upon federal aid, federal assistance, the federal government making sure that they can survive. So even though Westerners might claim to be very self-sufficient, we don't need the federal government for nothing, people. That's something that's kind of, that's lasted a lot longer than the actual Wild West generation. If you look at history, it's actually pretty dependent upon it. Uh, there are indeed Native Americans. There are indeed Native Americans. Um, some of them who are indeed warlike. Um, the genre is not so much nowadays. When I was a kid, there was a lot of old cowboys and Indians movies you might see on TV. Where basically, you know, the Indians are like, you know, running around and, uh, you know, attacking people and stuff like that. Uh, there are some. There are some that are warlike. Uh, the Comanche come to mind. They're based in Texas. Uh, they're they're pretty big raiders. Um, the Apache raid a little bit, but the Comanche are the ones who like really do the raiding. Um, this is the time period of the so-called Indian Wars. This is where the cavalry start fighting each other. You have things like Custer. I'll talk about Custer quite a bit later because he's pretty big to the historical imagination of the Western. Uh, not much in terms of actual warfare. Uh, also, I should mention, in places like Kansas, you do have a fairly sizable ex-slave population. Uh, most of what we see in Westerns is nothing but, like, uh, white folks. Uh, that's inaccurate. Uh, the West is actually a fairly diverse place in this time period. You got white folks, you got uh, black folks, you got Native Americans, you got Chinese folks. You have a lot of Hispanic folks. We'll talk about Hispanic folks uh, in just a second. So it's pretty diverse, actually. Uh, a lot of exodusters and stuff, they're going to Kansas because they believe that's a place where former slaves can get the best life. And, you know, they want to do agriculture, and Kansas is a very good agricultural state. And there's a lot of land, theoretically, for homesteading. Uh, racism does come into play. They do kick a lot out of these exodusters. Uh, most of them end up going to urbanized areas, ultimately. Uh, mainly the West Coast, was in like California. That Well, I don't know if we're ever going to... Yeah, no, we're going to talk about that when we get to gangster rap, so... Anyway, uh, probably the most romanticized part of the Old West is the cowboy. Um, like I said, it's synonymous with the United States of America, a lot of places over the world. Uh, you know, the cowboy kind of fits into this Natty Bopo uh, template. You know, he, he doesn't like civilization, doesn't like baths, carries a gun, he's a crack shot, is his own lawman, uh, carries a revolver, usually, instead of a, uh, a long gun. You know, six-shooter, these type of pistols, Remington. Uh, what, what else? You know, he, he works for, you know, he, uh, he, he's financially independent, does his own thing. Um, he's white. Did I mention he's white? Did I mention he's white? Uh, historical cowboys are quite different. They are not the historic, uh, the romanticized figures they ultimately become. 
That is an invention of Hollywood and the Western and novels and stuff. Uh, the people writing these Western novels, which later become the Hollywood Westerns, a lot of them aren't really from the West, and um, they really whitewash it. Uh, most cowboys work for wages uh, because they don't own the cows. Generally, the people who own the cows uh, don't go out on the range to do the cowboy stuff. Uh, most cowboys are not gunslingers. Uh, some might carry a gun uh, when they're walking around, but uh, generally they don't when they're out on the range. They do have guns for coyotes. That's during the cook who has that. Uh, because cows are big, it might stampede, and stampeding is bad. Uh, Gunfights are, are not that common in the Old West, in the Wild West. Um, you know, we we know more about them because they get romanticized, like the, uh, the showdown of the OK Corral, or something like that, or the idea that it's a lawless place, quote-unquote. Uh, you know, Billy the Kid is probably the most famous of these, like, you know, killers. Uh, he actually doesn't kill that many people. He does kill some, and, I mean, killing anybody's bad. But, you know, they, they say, oh, he kills, like, you know, 15, 50, 100, 200 people. Uh, no, no, he, he might kill seven, I think. Uh, but it's, it's the tall tale. It's the American, uh, you know, desire to exaggerate. It's the American, very much American thing of exaggerating the size of stuff, the tall tales. And I can't iterate this enough. Even at the time, the tall tale is a hallmark of Western life because it's a hallmark of American life. The exaggerating, things get bigger than they actually are because then again, a lot of these things are big. Like if you've never heard about a buffalo and you're told like, hey, there are these animals and they're like twice the size of cows and they're all over the place and the mega herd that used to exist was literally a million strong and you could see, uh, you know, like a herd of buffalo the size of a city just like wandering around. Uh, it looks like an ocean of brown, like, that, that sounds too big to be true, you know? If you hear about, like, Texas jackrabbits, they're like, oh, yeah, it's like double the size of a regular rabbit, it sounds too good to be true. You know, if you look at a western landscape, like Monument Valley or something, you see all these, like, mesas, uh, the Grand Canyon. And that kind of gets exaggerated because some of it is bigger. Like, when they say, you know, things are bigger than Texas, a lot of it has to do with the landscape and... You know, we don't have as much trees and vegetation, so what they do have has to be pretty big. You have cactuses and junk. Uh, you have buffalo, which are really huge. But the exaggeration grows. Now, if you go over one slide, you will see historical cowboys, actual cowboys. Um, the vast, and I mean the vast majority of cowboys are Hispanic. Uh, pretty much everything we know about cowboys comes from Mexico. Uh, vaquero, that's that's uh, the, the, the Mexican word for like Mexican cowboys. Uh, lassos come from Mexico, uh, like sombreros come from Mexico, clearly, but like what later becomes the cowboy hat is a variation of the sombrero. Uh, a lot of cowboy lingo actually comes from uh, from Mexico, like buckaroo is probably the anglization of the uh, the Spanglish version, if you will, of vaquero. Um, a lot of stuff. Pretty much everything we know about cowboys comes from Spain. Uh, by Spain, I mean Mexico. But, you know, other Hispanic people... Uh, anywhere from like one third to uh, not quite a half, but most cowboys were Hispanic. Most cowboys were Mexican. Uh, the second biggest group was black, actually. If you see there on the right, that's a picture of Nat Love. Nat Love is the most famous black cowboy, but there are a lot of black cowboys too. Uh, mainly because cowboy work is kind of dirty. It's 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 not fun being out there on the range in actuality. It's the difference between like. Going camping and then literally living in a tent. Like, 
I don't know if anybody here's ever been on a trail ride, but like that seems kind of cute, right? You know, act, you know, fun little trail ride. You know, everything's nice and safe. Uh, there's lots of food. Your car's not that far away. Then there's like actual going on the range, which is a dirty job. Uh, people don't really want it. Yes, it gets romanticized, but that's a lot of dirty jobs get romanticized. So the people who end up doing it most of the time are like Hispanic folks or you know freed slaves like like Nate Love, and they get really big. Um, only a small percentage of cowboys are white. I'd say maybe a quarter, less than a quarter of cowboys. Certainly less than 20% of cowboys are white. Uh, they're also not really high on the socioeconomic sale. So now that I, uh, you know, <laughs> demystified the West, let's talk about making the West. And this picture right here is a great picture. It's in your book. but uh, And like I said, I'm not going to be talking too, too much about Buffalo Bill, but... Um, I like this picture because it's got George Custer on the left. It's got uh, Buffalo Bill on the right. It's got some Duke in the middle. He's not so important. But Buffalo Bill and another guy I need to know about is Frederick Jackson Turner. Now, Buffalo Bill Cody, as, as you're going to read about, I'm not going to go too much into this, but uh, you know, he's born in Iowa to Quaker parents in 1846. Uh, his dad moves to Kansas during the whole Bleeding Kansas fiasco, which uh, that's where basically there's a civil war before the Civil War in Kansas. Uh, his dad was actually sla- uh, stabbed for being anti-slavery. He'd actually die when Cody was 11. Uh, Cody needs work. And needing, needing a job wherever he can, he does all sorts of stuff. Um, by 1860, right before the, the Civil War, he is a grizzled 14-year-old. I love this idea of a grizzled 14-year-old. Like, 14-year-old Buffalo Bill Cody, you know, he's, he's got to work for his mom. I'm uh, sorry, to put mom, for, you know, put mom on his food, to put food on the table for his mom. Put mom on his food. Put food on the table for his mom. He's got to work. He does whatever jobs he can. Uh, by the time the Civil War started, you know, he'd already, he was a messenger for the Union. Uh, he, he claimed to be a gold prospector, did a lot of other odd jobs. Uh, he ran on the Pony Express for a little while. Um, Pony Express was the, the mail system where basically they had a team of tandem riders that, like, ran up the West. It lasted for, like, a couple months until the telegraphs came, and it was a lot cheaper and a lot easier and a lot more secure to do that. But uh, he's, a, he's a grizzled 14-year-old. I just love the idea of a grizzled 14-year-old Buffalo Bill you know, seeing some stuff, not living on the streets, but like, you know, he, he's got to do what he can because he's got to, you know, help out his mom because his dad's dead. Um, he's too young to be in the, in, as, a, as a soldier at 14, but he does act as a teamster and scout. A teamster is just like a general laborer. Uh, the thing he really does, though, the thing he really gets known for is scouting. Uh, basically, you know, going out, finding out where like land is, finding out where food is, finding out where stuff is, finding out where water is. Uh, that's most of his legitimate career. Uh, I'll put legitimate in quotation marks is being a scout for the uh, army on the Western frontier. That's what he does quite a bit. Uh, he is legitimately good with scouting. Like oh, so much of what later comes on with him is like tall tales and exaggerations. But when it comes to scouting, uh, he is legit at it. Uh, likewise, uh, despite his public persona, he's actually always on very good terms with Native Americans. Uh, yes, he would claim to become a, an Indian killer, which is dubious. Well, he claims at 14 he's already killed some Indians, which dubious, very dubious of a claim. But, uh, you know, that's kind of the romanticized thing. They expect people to kill Indians, do scalps, stuff like that. Um, he also does work for Custer for a little bit as a scout. Uh, that's going to become pretty important later on. 
Now, the war does end in, you know, the mid-1860s. Um, Cody goes back west, starts scouting and doing things like that. In 1867, he gets a contract with the Kansas Pacific Railway uh, to supply its workers with meat, specifically buffalo meat. Uh, there's tons of buffalo all over the place, and um, killing buffalo in this time period is actually a high-skill endeavor. Um, when it becomes a low-skill endeavor, that's where all the buffaloes start dying left and right because it gets too easy. Uh, however, uh, buffaloes are very big. They have very, very, very thick hides. At this time period, uh, the rifles that they had were not powerful enough to really pierce buffalo skin. So if you wanted to kill a buffalo, you had to be a really good crack shot. Um, you know, get it basically either in the eye or the chest. And also you had to make sure you don't upset the herd too much because, like, you, you kill the buffalo. And then buffalo, if buffalo are threatened, generally buffalo just stand their ground because they're bigger than everything and they might charge you. And so you have to kill it, and then you have to wait for the other buffalo to leave. So you have to scare away the other buffalo, because if buffalo are too threatened, they're going to just stay put. It, it, it actually takes some legit skill <clears throat> to do. And also, buffalo are massive. <coughs> Sorry for the cough. Buffalo are, you know, a couple thousand pounds. They're very big. And the uh, Kansas Pacific Railroad Company wants buffalo meat. Uh, later on, they just kill buffalo for killing buffalo's sake, but at this time period, they're still killing buffalo just for meat. Um, if you look at the records of how much uh, buffalo meat a person would get as a daily ration, I believe, oh, I don't want to get these numbers wrong, but I believe the daily ration for a man of buffalo meat with the Kansas Pacific and also some of these forts was 10 pounds of buffalo meat. Uh, for a woman, it's 5 pounds, and for a child, it was 2.5 pounds. So I just want you to imagine 10 pounds of buffalo meat a day. Um, I love buffalo meat. That stuff's delicious. I can't eat 10 pounds of anything, let alone meat. But that was the daily ration. That was, for a lot of times, that was the only thing these railroad workers got to eat, but it's a good source of protein. There's also the problem of what to do with that much buffalo, because they don't really have refrigeration, so they have to do things like cure it or smoke it or whatever. So, uh, in 1867, he gets a contract with the Kansas Pacific Railroad to hunt buffalo, which, remember, was a high-skill thing in this time period, to supply its workers with meat. Uh, the next year, he has supposedly a contest with William Comstock. You read about that in your, your, um, in your section, about who could kill the most buffaloes in eight hours. And so, according to legend, Buffalo, got, buffalo Bill got 68, Comstock got um, 48, this is probably a very dubious contest, especially they say like at the end it was all sorts of exciting because they were like right in front of the train just shooting buffaloes left and right. Uh, what is true is that this is where Buffalo Bill really takes on the moniker of Buffalo Bill. Uh, before this, he was just known as William Cody. Uh, this is where he gets the time the moniker of Buffalo, basically because he can kill buffalo the best, and the buffalo really becomes his. Um, symbol really becomes the thing that becomes associated with Buffalo Bill is the Buffalo itself. Now, what's really interesting is a year after that, okay, a year after that, in 1869, so he is 23 years old. He is a, no offense, because like, you know, y'all, y'all are like 18, 19, 20 years old, and you're like, oh, don't say I'm a baby, but 23 is fairly young for what's about to happen. Uh, the first tall tales written about him in the Chicago Tribune. And this spreads to other newspapers. Basically, it exaggerates his... You're going to read part of that in your book, so I'm not going to go too deep into it. Uh, exaggerates his attributes, exaggerates what he does, really romanticizes the wilderness and the West. 
Um, it's interesting that even while the quote unquote golden age of the West is happening, like we're barely out of the civil war. They're already writing about it. It's like, Oh, it's so romanticized. Oh, it's, it's, it's going away. Um, Something we said about this, like, distance between, you know, Chicago and the quote-unquote Wild West, you know, the Dakota Territory and stuff, where Buffalo Bill's doing his thing. And also the idea that, like, urban lifestyles are different than rural lifestyles, and that urban lifestyles are making us less masculine or something like that. Uh, this newspaper series was very popular, and then it got turned into a series of dime novels. Uh, dime novels are called, because they cost a dime, uh, total pulp, total garbage that are written very quickly. Uh, these are not written by Buffalo Bill. They're written by other people about Buffalo Bill. You're, you're going to read about them in your in your section, so I'm not going to get into that. Uh, they're total tripe. They are total BS. It is total made up, but it helps spread the myth. And even as a very young man, by, by like literally, he is like in his early 20s, he's already a semi-mythical figure. The idea that he he's talking about all the stuff he did and like all the things he's done in the past He's already become a mythical figure, and especially in 1872, so he's like 26, 25, he does his first stage show. He's not an actor by any means, but the dime novels have gotten so popular that people want to see the character they've fallen in love with. They want him to, they want to see this person they've, they've read these stories about, and he's still just a child, not a child. He's a very young man this time period. This is when he starts donning the buckskin. You know, he didn't wear too much buckskin before, but then he's like wearing buckskin all the time. Starts growing out his hair. Uh, because it seems a more romanticized thing, a more romanticized thing to do. Uh, generally, you know, you try to keep your hair fairly short because uh, in the sun period, because you know it gets in your place. But like guys like Custer, and well, even in this picture, Custer has short hair. But Buffalo Bill, like they grow their hair longer. Uh, he gets more comfortable with acting. He becomes more comfortable with it. It becomes pretty good. Uh, you'll read about how some of his first shows were pretty much like the dude can't act, but man, does he look good? You know, he's he's a strapping young man. Looks good. People think he, he he casts this image of a Western figure. And it, it kind of gets into this, this pattern where, like, he does this during the winter. So, like, you know, whenever it's too cold to scout, you know, whenever, like, you know, things aren't growing, it's hard to live off the land. He goes to, like, Chicago and, like, does his show. And then in the spring and the summer, he goes to the West to do scouting stuff and get more tales, which helps really perpetuate the myth. And, like, in these dime novels, they're talking about all the stuff he's done, like, years ago in the past – and it's like, you know, oh, yes, I, 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 you know, I, I hunted, uh, I hunted, you know, all this stuff. I, I killed Native Americans, killed Indians. I had all these adventures and whatnot. And it's like, when, when exactly did you do this? You know, he's talking about this mythic, he is championing a mythic past when he barely has a past. And likewise, that's where the, uh, that's where the time periods start getting hazy. You know, when does all this happen exact, exactly? Um, 1876 is a pretty big year because that is when it's a centennial, uh, Buffalo Bill is, is still doing this stuff. He's about 30 in this time period. Yeah. In fact, he does turn 30. Uh, he has worked with Custer. Some Custer is, um, talk about Custer in just a second, but he has worked with Custer somewhat as a scout. Uh, in 1876, it's like I said, it's a centennial. America's really trying to highlight its heroic history. Try to absolve the old wounds of the war, though, um, of the Civil War. They, they really start having unity celebrations about 10 years after the war ends. But right before the 4th of July, news arrived. Uh, news was that Custer was dead by Indian force. And a guy who was mainly known just to army people and like people out on the frontier all of a sudden becomes a tragic figure. 
Now, who is Custer? Well, Custer, Custer's got a little bit of a Civil War history. Um, he was theoretically a general during the Civil War. It was a battlefield promotion. He has very little distinction in the Civil War. Uh, bounce arounds quite a bit during the Indian Wars, kind of get one forever. He was fairly tight with the media of the time period. Uh, mainly, he was a self-promoter, like taking portraits of himself, very fond of journaling. Uh, like I said, self-promoter, considered himself like a romantic hero, like a... You know, he had this long blonde hair, considered himself like this kind of a fashion plate type of thing. This kind of very, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Sexy, maybe? Just like, oh, you know, this is this is something that's very daring, very uh, very attractive, very, very interesting himself. Uh, took portraits of himself. Like, he's one of the first people to really do a selfie. Uh, anyway, what's going on here is the Sioux and Crow tribes uh, were really upset by the U.S.'s attempt to take the Black Hills. Um, the Black Hills are a part of South Dakota that's sacred to, uh, to the Sioux people. Um, it's where they believe God created the world, like capital case G God, a creator God created the world. Um, Native American beliefs are kind of different to each one. Usually they don't, they, they have a, most Native American tribes do have a capital case G creator job, uh, job, God, but a God that doesn't interact too much with human beings. However, for the Sioux, the Black Hills were important. It was a place where they believed that like, the world was created and also where God hangs out whenever he's on Earth. Uh, at first, the United States was going to let the Sioux have this land because it was sacred land and also hills, so it doesn't look very good for farming. However, when gold's discovered in the Black Hills, uh, the U.S. government changes its mind. This upsets a lot of people, mainly the Sioux, but also the uh, Crow who don't live around there. They actually live on a different reservation, but you're actually having Native Americans come together. Uh, the Sioux appoint uh, General Sitting Bull. Uh, Sitting Bull is the war chief. He's a Sioux warrior who leads this combined assault. Uh, basically, they are, they are amassing, they are mobilizing in Crow lands in uh, southwestern Montana, southeastern Montana. Uh, basically, Custer, trying to get the glory for himself, disobeys orders, goes into himself. He goes a little bighorn. He gets slaughtered. This happens in 1876. Remember, uh, even since the 1820s, Americans have been talking as though the Native Americans are like dying out. They're about to go away. Um, what news reports you did hear from the Wild West, quote unquote, were uh, things like, oh, you know, the Native Americans are almost gone. <coughs> yeah, they're, they're, it's mainly settlers. It's a very vast and empty place. You know, yes, we have to bring in the uh, cavalry to keep things in place, but they're not really, you know, uniting together. It's not a large thing, nothing to be truly afraid about. And like I said, Custer was not really that well known before his death, but after his death, he becomes a, uh, um, a household name. Uh, mainly his wife. Uh, Custer marries not too long before he dies, actually. He marries somebody who's fairly young. I believe Custard's in his 30s at this point, late 30s, maybe even early 40s. Uh, his wife is quite young, uh, just out of her teens. So I want to say she's 18, 19 years old. They've only been married for a little while. And after he dies, she takes on the role of the grieving widow. And she plays this for the rest of her life. Uh, she lives for about 60 years after Custer dies. I mean, she's well into the 20th century. And she's the one really behind trying to champion her husband into a heroic figure. Uh, kind of akin to a Buffalo Bill or something. Basically, like he was the greatest one who ever lived, the greatest general. He tried to help the country. He was betrayed, this sort of thing. His death, you know, becomes Custard's last stand. This very romanticized, glorified figure, also playing into the Western aesthetic. 
Uh, like I mentioned, she never remarries, plays the widow for decades, about 60 years. And like I said, Custard's death was viewed as shocking for most Americans because the Indians in the West were typically portrayed as an old threat that had been conquered and tamed. Remember, Westerns loved the trope of the vanishing Indian, the way of life, and now it kind of appears that things might not be as safe as they had hoped. Now, to be fair, um, the U.S. military, the U.S. cavalry in particular, really comes down hard on the Crow and the Sioux. Um, Sitting Bull is forced to flee. He, he, he tries to flee to Canada to get asylum. Uh, the Canadians don't uh, offer him admittance, and so he, he finally does uh, surrender, saying, I will fight no more forever, and that's his end. And in the midst of all this, William Cody is revamping his Wild West show. You see, Custer had worked briefly with Cody, uh, very briefly. Uh, Custer had hired Cody as a, as a guide, as a scout, something fairly common. Remember, that was, uh, that was William Cody's legitimate job, as being a scout. And Buffalo Bill is now trying, over one slide, to make a new show. A new show that's really going to champion it. Because remember, he's been doing the acting thing for a while. He's been like, you know, coming onto stage in Chicago, delivering lines, acting with all of his Wild West stuff. But now people don't want to hear about it. People want to see it. It's not enough to see the guy who did the thing. You want to see the guy who do who did the thing do the thing. You know, they talk about Buffalo Bill being a crack shot, talk about him doing all this stuff. Westerns are very popular stories. You know, you hear stories about Native Americans and buffalo hunts and trick riders, rope riders, you know, cattle rustlers, all that good stuff. And there's a demand for it. People just don't want to see a show about it. They want to see the actual thing. And so Buffalo Bill comes up with his Wild West show. In fact, he's one of the reasons why I have the term Wild West. This new show is called The Buffalo Bill's Wild West. And the original show, go over one slide, you will see, makes Custard's Last Stand the climax of the show. Oh, I should mention, uh, I have all these ads for the show. I, I love these ads, just for just how, how emotive they are. Uh, it's Buffalo Wills, Wild West, and the Congress of Rough Riders of the World. I mean, look at that first picture with all the horsemen on it, all the cowboys. You know, a company of Wild West cowboys, the real rough riders, whose daring exploits have made their very name synonymous with deeds of bravery. Like Barnum, I guarantee the actual show didn't look like that. <clears throat> Nothing about it dramatic, but if you go over one, you're going to see um, an Indian fight. This idea that, you know, you're going to have uh, one, of the, one of the set pieces is uh, an Indian raid on covered wagons. You know, you're going to have actual Native Americans who are going to come out and do their war dances. I mean, look at that. I, I love this line. A Congress of American Indians representing various tribe, characters and peculiarities of the wily, dusky warriors in scenes from actual life, giving their weird war dances and picturesque style of horsemanship. Now, I don't know if Barnum and uh, Buffalo Bill ever met in person, but you can see clearly how the Barnum style of advertising is reflected with Buffalo Bill. Clearly. And there are actual Native Americans who work for Buffalo Bill. Buffalo Bill, remember, although his character is an Indian fighter, he is very well known for actually being pretty decent to Native Americans, and most Native Americans who work for him say that he does a pretty good job. I mean, yeah, they're kind of forced to do very, um, I don't want to say degrading, but stereotypical things, uh, but still, you know, and they're, they're always the villain in these shows, they're always the villain in the shows, they always lose, uh, but still, that's this whole shtick. And his new climax, 
His climax of the show, like I said, this starts around 1883, so only a few years, only just a very few years after uh, Custard's Last Stand has occurred, is a reenactment of Custard's Last Stand. That becomes the climax of his show. The climax of his show is Buffalo Bill, you know, reenacting Custard's Last Stand. They have Native Americans fighting. Uh, of course, in real life, Custard dies. Uh, they change it, so basically, Custard still dies, but at the very end, you know, Buffalo Bill rides in at the last second. Oh, he just meant saving, you know, the life of Custer. Oh, if only Buffalo Bill had come in quicker, that sort of shtick. And this is pretty popular. Remember, he starts this in 1883. It gets really popular. He starts touring the country, uh, doing all sorts of cool things, all sorts of interesting things that are Western. Uh, he literally hunts buffalo. They literally have buffalo hunts. Or basically, they bring in buffalo, and then they, like, kill buffalo, which, <laughs> this poor buffalo. Even before Buffalo Builds Wild West Show, they uh, over, I wouldn't even say over hunting, because hunting implies you eat it, but slaughter a buffalo, taking the buffalo um, herds in the United States from about 5 million to about 1,000, which is just horrible. Uh, but they hunt actual buffalo, so you get a little bit of the, you know, almost gladiatorial games. Um Buffalo don't win, though. Buffalo don't relate to anybody. But they also do other, like, rodeo stuff. You know, like uh, trick riding. Uh, you know, barrel racing. Stuff like that. A lot of horse jumping. Uh, trick shooting. Uh, Annie Oakley is a pretty important part of his show. Uh, we'll talk about her in just a second. But, um, you know, it, it, they travel the country showing America Western life. It's showing the exoticism of America. And as you're going to read, he's championing a past that's gone. He's like, wow, we're, he, it really gets into this idea of memory. For a lot of people who theoretically live through the Wild West, their version of reality is what Buffalo Bill is producing. Because like, even Mark Twain, who's like familiar with uh, you know, self-promotion, after he sees the show, he's so entranced. He's like, yeah, no, this is what it was like. You know, it, it's realistic, this whole spectacle. And like I said, it's a very mythical version of the West, even though it, it claims to be contemporary. It claims that, like, this is the stuff that's going on, uh, you know, in the West part of the country. It's going away. It's about to completely go away, but it's something to watch. And in 1885, Custer gets a huge new attraction, uh, a crazy new, new boom. If you go over one slide, you'll see that picture of his new attraction. That is Sitting Bull. <laughs> that is the Sitting Bull. The Sitting Bull, the guy who not even 10 years earlier, this is 1885, so in 1880s, sorry, 1876, nine years uh, earlier, he is literally the guy who, like, is in charge of the war party that kills Custer. Uh, Sitting Bull needs a job, straight up. Sitting Bull, remember, he tries to flee to Canada with his, with his tribe, uh, with his followers. They don't let him in. He says he's not going to fight forever. Um, he literally needs a job. And Buffalo Bill is hired. Buffalo Bill says, hey, why don't you come to me and act in the reenactment of Custard's Last Stand? Not even 10 years afterward, the death of you know, a theoretical American hero, somebody who becomes lionized as a great American hero, is being reenacted by the actual guy who does it. Like, not even 10 years ago, he's the hated villain who killed a bunch of American soldiers, and now he's doing this show, you know, once a day and twice on Sunday. 
like you know, eight times a week, he's doing these reenactments where he's le- literally reenacting the thing which brought him so much notoriety. And like for an extra quarter, you can beat him after the show. You can literally shake the hand of the man that killed Custer. This is cuckoo banana pants. Like, it, imagine it's the year 2010. And, like, you can see a reenactment of September 11th starring Osama bin Laden. Like, this is just nutso. And for an extra 20 bucks, you can shake his hand afterwards. You know, meet the guy who blew up the World Trade Center. Like, this is bonkers. And it starts spreading because Buffalo Bill starts hiring even more Native Americans. Uh, You'll see right there, if you go over one picture, uh, there's a picture of Buffalo Bill with Annie Oakley and some of the Native Americans who work for him. Also, you see a... Um, Mexican cowboy who also does it for well. Like, Buffalo Bill it has a fairly diverse show, but he's still championing a show kind of white dominance. I don't want to say white supremacy, but just like, you know, the white cowboys and stuff. You know, it's America, and America means white in this time period. But these are actual Native Americans who were doing their thing, going out and making their whole shtick. And he becomes super popular. I included an advertisement. I. I love this advertisement. I love this advertisement. I, I want to get this printed out and put it in my office. Um, it's a picture of basically the poster they would put up in a town a month or two before Buffalo Bill came into town. To spread the word, basically some field agents would go out, go to town, and paste this beautiful, beautiful picture of Buffalo Bill with the buffalo in the background. You know, see that giant buffalo you know, running with full tilt. There's other buffalo. It's a stampede. Picture of, you know, war, you know, Colonel William Cody, Buffalo Bill, and simply says, I am coming. That is just good advertising. Like, it, it tells you what to expect. And, you know, the other ones show you more exactly, you know, just like all the crazies is going to go on. But that I am coming, that is just beautiful. Just beautiful minimalism of like, this is a buffalo, they're, they're running about, and he is coming. He's linking himself to the idea of the buffalo. It's like the West is coming to see you. They're charging to see you. It's, it's, it's bigger than life. Now, Buffalo Bill's profile raises even higher whenever he does his European tour. Um, kind of similar to Barnum and how he does this. Uh, if you go over one slide, you're going to see a beautiful piece of artwork basically showing his tour. It lasts for about two years. For about two years... Uh, Buffalo Bill and his show, they go all over Europe. Uh, they, they go to England. They go to Germany quite a bit, France, Italy, Austria, Spain. Uh, entertaining royals. Uh, there's some great photographs they have out there of some of the Native Americans who work with uh, Buffalo Bill going to, like, Buckingham Palace, taking pictures and stuff like that. Um, like I said, he goes with royalty. Uh, he performs in front of uh, Queen El- uh, not Queen Elizabeth, but Queen Victoria. Uh, likewise, he does do a performance with Kaiser Wilhelm I of, uh, of Germany uh, before he's Kaiser, he, back when he's still a prince. Uh, Kaiser Wilhelm is very excited about this whole process. He loves this idea. He's fascinated by the, the West. Uh, we talked about that earlier, how for weird reasons, Germans get very entranced by the West. Uh, Kaiser Wilhelm wants to participate in the show. Well, Prince Wilhelm wants to participate in the show. Um... He participates in the stagecoach uh, running around, where they have the stagecoach being chased. He's in the stagecoach. Uh, probably the most dangerous thing that he does is he performs as part of Annie Oakley's show. As part of Annie Oakley's show, he gets her to shoot a cigar out of his mouth, which is kind of terrifying when you think about it. And honestly, had she not been such a great shot, um, 
the world might have been better. Uh, Annie Oakley, if I didn't mention before, she is a, they, they call her a little sheer shot. She's like five foot nothing, not even a hundred and nothing, barely anything and nothing. And she's part of the promotion as well. And all this comes together to really make Buffalo Bill the premier showman in all of America, coming to really represent the United States as a whole. He becomes probably the biggest name in the country, up there with Barnum. I would argue for a while he's a bigger draw than Barnum. And he's really champion, because Barnum is champion like a version of America. William Cody is champion of America itself. And it really grows to a very high profile. Uh, he becomes bigger and bigger spectacles, adds even more trick riders. Uh, the idea of the, the Rough Riders of the World, Congress of the Rough Riders of the World, bringing in, like, you know, horsemen from all over, not just the West, you know, kind of brings in this giant big tent show, that sort of thing. And it's no surprise that Buffalo Bill participates in one of the biggest exhibitions ever to happen in America, the Columbia Exhibition of 1893. Go over one more picture, you will see a slide of the Columbia Exhibition. Uh, this is one of those topics I can talk almost as much as I can talk about Buffalo. Close, but uh, very close. <laughs> the Columbia Exhibition is a World's Fair. It's theoretically done for the uh, 400th anniversary of Columbus coming in America. I know it's 1893, not 1490, you know, not 1892, but the year to build it. Uh, it's built in Chicago. Chicago had gone through a very bad fire a couple years prior, the Great Fire of Chicago. It's the idea that Chicago is rebuilt, but what the White City is, which is also the Columbian Exhibition, it's called the White City because they build all these like plaster buildings just for the fair in a lagoon. It's not even a real lagoon in Chicago. They make up this lagoon, and then they build all these fake buildings, all these exhibitions. And I would love to go to this thing because it's one of the biggest exhibitions in U.S. history. So many million people go there. The first Ferris wheel's there. A lot of different new foodstuffs are introduced there. And at first... The, the, um, the people, you know, the producers of the exhibition asked Buffalo Bill, hey, would you be willing to participate in the exhibition? He's like, yeah, sure, I will. But then he chooses not to because it says it's too small of our arena. It's too small of the venue. And he's, and he's like, this is, this is just too small for me. I can't do it. And plus, they want him to take less money than he feels it's worth. So instead, Buffalo Bill literally builds his little arena next door to the exhibition. And actually, some guys, he, with, he outdraws the exhibition. So he's still in line with this. You know, they're showing progress. They're showing modernity. And then next door, which a lot of people assume is the same exhibition, Buffalo Bill is showing his version of the Wild West. Now, for American history, and particularly the study of American history, the Columbian Exhibition is important for one other reason. And if you have one slide, I'm going to bore you for a second about historiography. Not really bore you, but this is a very important thing that happens. That man right there on the left is Frederick Jackson Turner. Frederick Jackson Turner, this time period, he's a young historian. He's a young civil, uh, not civil war historian. He's a young American historian, got his PhD, becoming a professor. He later becomes a college president. Uh, but he, he's giving a paper. Now, as a historian, that's something I have to do from time to time. I don't just teach all. I, I write books, I write articles, and then I present them. And they're having one of these history conferences at the Columbian Exhibition. And at the Columbia Exhibition, Frederick Jackson Turner gives a paper. And it's not just any paper. It's probably the most important paper from how we study American history as historians. 
It's called the Frontier Thesis. Uh, I have a picture out there of like what the Frontier Thesis is. And basically, Frederick Jackson Turner says, hey, you know what? The idea of the frontier, not necessarily the reality of the frontier, but the idea of the frontier is the guiding principle in American history. Like, all of American development is based around this idea that, you know what? We can make a new person out of ourselves. There's always land available. You can always go west. You can always make a new name for yourself. You can always create a new person out of yourself. And that was America's guiding principle. This dovetails very nicely into the Western stuff we talked about. Now, Frederick Jackson Turner didn't invent this idea. In fact, it's ubiquitous without American culture. But he's the first one to say, you know what? This is the defining idea of American identity. Maybe not the reality. But the idea that we can go into the West, we can go off to the frontier and make ourselves a new person. But even as he says this, Jackson claims, because of the Census Bureau saying there's no place in America with less than two million, sorry, with less than two people per square mile, dubious numbers, but whatever, he says the frontier is gone. So even with this, he's kind of goading into the Western mindset, the Western genre mindset of there is the West, it's this magical place, a man can become a man, but it's going away. For Jackson, he says the West is going away, and we need to find out a new guiding principle for us. Now, Buffalo Bill may or may not be familiar with this, but it is very much echoed in Buffalo Bill's show. You know, I don't, I don't think Buffalo Bill and Frederick Jackson Turner ever met. I, I know Frederick Jackson Turner was clearly aware of Buffalo Bill. Uh, Buffalo Bill probably wasn't aware of Frederick Jackson Turner. But the overlap is there. And, and the Frontier Thesis, to this day, is a very important um, concept in, in our study of American history, like as us as what historians do. Now, like I said, uh, Buffalo Bill is older by this point. You know, he's becoming much older. He starts doing movies. Uh, he starts trying to make a um, settle something. He actually literally settles a town uh, named after him in Wyoming, Cody, Wyoming. Uh, I've been there a few times, actually. Cody, Wyoming. It's on the eastern gates of Yellowstone National Park. Um, it's not a national park quite yet. Whenever he's doing all of this stuff, it's about to become a national park. In fact... One of the legacy of Cody is uh, a Buffalo Bill is one of the reasons why it gets so big, that and the Old Faithful. Uh, ultimately, Buffalo Bill does live um, until 1917. Uh, and by the time he dies, the show is viewed as somewhat passe, even though new technologies are coming in. Even though new technologies are coming in, um, his show is still viewed as kind of passe, but the Western is still very popular. And here's the thing, by the time he dies in, in 1917, he's been a mythical figure of his own making for about 50 years. Like, his, I don't want to say his fake view, because for a while he really was a scout, but his champion story, the way he created this facade of himself, based upon American identity, really becomes ingrained. If you go over to the last slide, you'll see um, a monument to him in, in Cody, in Cody, Wyoming. Uh, his grave is there. His grave is not quite as pretty as a statue to him. This is in the dead center of town. In the dead center of town, you will see this statue, the Buffalo Bill, with his dates and Roman numerals. Like, gives it an extra weight. Uh, the entire town is kind of Buffalo Bill-centric. It's, all the stuff there is either tourism or, like, Buffalo Bill stuff. And when you go there, you're going to see a lot of stuff because he literally made the town very akin, it all links together, to how William Cooper made Cooperstown 
that his son idolized in, you know, the Leatherstocking Tales. Now Buffalo Bill has created his own town, which idolizes him for his whole showmanship thing he did. Now, ironically, because everything in this class links together, one of the last things Buffalo Bill does is he makes movies. Uh, basically, they do film him, and they also film his show. Uh, you will see, if you click on the link in Moodle, an actual clip of the Buffalo Bill Wild West show. Almost at its, it's not like it is at its height, but it's kind of, if you watch it, even though it's black and white, you can kind of get a pretty good idea about what a show is like. Now, they have some stage stuff, him riding around and doing things. I, I think he doesn't do anything more um, strenuous than, like, riding his horse for a second than getting down. But still, it's the actual Buffalo Bill showing this new art form of cinema. And next class, we are going to talk about cinema. We're going to talk about the movies and how this changes things. But I want you to be thinking about how this links together. The fact that James Fenimore Cooper, you know, writes these leather stocking tales based upon his frontier life in a town his literally dad named and named after himself. And the concept of the Western ghost of Buffalo Bill, who champions this thing, makes his own town and makes his own name. Puts his real name for the town, Cody, not Buffalo Bill, Wyoming, but Cody, Wyoming. This idea about him making his own character, he becomes a truer version of yourself. Likewise, you know, Natty Bumpo, um, he do, you know, becomes a truer version of himself when he becomes leather stocking. And that is something we'll talk about with identity of changing one's name. With that, this is Dr. Telly talking about Western.